0: Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 27. We're finally entering into the home stretch with Matthew. We should have just about 4 more weeks to go, and then it's going to be on to the epistle of James and we begin the final leg of our journey with Matthew here this morning with his account of the crucifixion. This occurs in Matthew 27, verses 27 to 44. And let's begin today's message by reading this passage together. Matthew 27, 27 to 44. Matthew says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, that compelled this man to carry his cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Describing the crucifixion, one commentator says this, The cross was the most disgraceful and one of the cruelest of instruments of death ever invented. The Romans who borrowed it from the Carthaginians would not allow a Roman citizen to be crucified, but reserved crucifixion for slaves and foreigners and provincials. The Jews customarily used stoning and never crucifixion. It was not only the death of greatest ignominy, it was also the most, extre- uh, the most extreme anguish and suffering. There were five forms of the cross used for this ghastly punishment. A plain stake to which the victim was nailed, the tau cross with the transom below the top, uh, the traditional type upon which Jesus was crucified, the crux Comissa or Greek cross with four arms of equal length, and St. Andrew's cross consisting of two beam- beams obliquely crossed. Going on, he says, the cross of Jesus was probably slightly higher than the traditional type, in the use of which the feet of the crucified were only a foot or two off uh, from the ground. The victim was usually first stripped naked, the garments falling to the lot of the executioners, but in the crucifixion of Jesus, tradition says that a loincloth was used. First, the upright was planted firmly in the ground, and then the victim was laid down with arms extended on the crossbar to which they were fastened by cords and afterwards by nails through the palms." Then the transom was raised to its position on the upright and nailed while the body was left to swing or its weight rested on an iron saddle peg driven into the upright. Following this, the feet were nailed either through the instep separately or both together with a uh, a single iron spike. There the body was left to hang in agony sometimes two or three days until death from pain and starvation ensued. It's hard to describe the agony that the crucified would have endured while they suffered this horrific form of punishment that I just described for you. For instance, while the Romans didn't always use nails to secure the crucified to the cross, they often did. And it's debated whether such nails were driven through the palms or through the wrists. The Bible says that Jesus was pierced in His hands, but the language of that time allows for some leeway in this regard, whether hands refer specifically to His palms or whether it conferred both to His hands and His wrists. The thinking is that a spike through the palms would either shatter several of the bones in Jesus' hand, which Scripture specifically says did not happen, or it would occur in the fleshy part of the palm between the thumb and the index finger, which wouldn't be strong enough to hold a person by their weight up on a cross. So it's supposed that perhaps a spike was driven into the wrist between the two bones in the forearm, the radius and the ulna. If so, then the 5 to 7 inch long iron spike that would have been used to crucify Jesus would have been driven through the median nerve which is the largest nerve running into the hand for some perspective imagine what it feels like when you hit your funny bone right, you've all felt that before now imagine taking a pair of pliers and squeezing that nerve which is actually the ulna nerve but still a major nerve running through the arm the pain of crushing the median nerve would be something like that occurring in both arms at the same time The nails in the feet would have had a similar effect, squeezing and crushing several major nerves running through the feet. Now, before the feet were nailed to the cross, the crucified were first nailed to the cross beam, and only after that were they lifted onto the cross beam and secured to the upright beam on the cross, which was already driven into the ground. As the crucified were thus raised up, and as the shoulders would have therefore begun to bear the weight of the crucified before the nails were driven through their feet, both arms would have been immediately stretched perhaps as much as six inches in length and both shoulders would be immediately dislocated. And then the nerves in the feet would have been crushed by the iron spikes running through the instep of the foot. We're talking multiple traumatic injuries happening in short succession, each one excruciating on its own, let alone in combination with one another. Once on the cross, the crucified were then faced with a choice. They, the crucified were affixed to the cross With their knees slightly bent. In other words, they weren't stretched out to their full extent. There was enough slack, so to speak, left in their legs so that if they wanted to, they could try to essentially stand on the peg, or uh, uh, kind of driven through their feet, uh, to alleviate the pressure in their shoulders. And this is important because by the way the crucified were attached to the cross, their chest was fixed in an inhaled position, whether they allowed themselves, if they allowed themselves to hang by their arms. Essentially, whenever they hanged, allowed themselves to rest by their arms, let their shoulders carry their body weight, they couldn't breathe. This is actually how crucifixion worked. It's how it killed people. The crucified could either choose to relax their knees and sit on the iron peg driven into the upright post of the cross, in which which case they would suffocate, or they could push themselves up by the spikes in their feet and take a breath. The crucified would thus alternate between standing on the spikes in their feet or sitting on the iron peg until ultimately exhaustion got the best of them or they, and they suffocated to death. So basically, while the crucified were experiencing the shock of the spikes in their hands and feet or uh, of their dislocated shoulders, they then had to choose either to aggravate the pain coming from the spikes in their feet or breathe They must choose either to continue their agony and prolong their life or suffocate and die. You see, this was a punishment designed to be especially cruel. This isn't a stoning. This isn't a noose around the neck or a bullet in the head. The death wasn't supposed to be quick. It was meant to be long and drawn out and physically and mentally torturous. It's meant not only to inflict unbearable pain, but really to mock the crucified over the futility and hopelessness of their situation. Once on the cross, they're not coming down. They're going to die. That's inevitable. And so now the question is, for how much longer? How much are you willing to suffer to keep what remains of your miserable existence going? That's the dilemma that the crucified face as they struggled and tortured themselves to take their next breath. Again, this is an especially cruel form of execution, and the Romans took it from the Carthaginians for that reason. It's not supposed to be a very efficient or clean manner of execution, but then again, the point of crucifixion isn't, isn't supposed to be to merely dispose of society's undesirables. Instead, it's supposed to strike fear in the hearts of any would-be criminals or traitors so that they would think twice before choosing to gamble and cross the might of Rome. It was used as a deterrent. That is why it was so methodically designed to be so slow and agonizing. But, but as painful as the common crucifixion was, Jesus' crucifixion would have been particularly agonizing because of the circumstances that took place leading up to it, starting in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Luke notes that in the garden, Jesus prayed so earnestly, so intensely that, quote, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Just so you know, that's not a miracle. That's an observed medical condition known as hematidrosis. Uh, hematidrosis is a condition that occurs when a person undergoes such severe psychological distress that their body releases a set of chemicals that causes the capillaries to break down in the sweat glands, which comes out as a mixture of sweat and blood. That's what it's going to look like sweat mixed with blood. Now, what's significant about hematidrosis is that afterwards the skin is especially sensitive. And that matters because only hours later, Jesus would be flogged while in Pilate's custody. The crucified were not always flogged before their crucifixion, but Jesus was, you'll remember, because Pilate wanted to demonstrate that he was innocent, that he couldn't be a threat to Rome, that he wasn't a threat to Rome, as was demonstrated by Pilate's evident power over him. So flogging adds to Jesus' suffering in the crucifixion. When a person was flogged, a Roman soldier would take a cat of nine tails, which was a kind of a frayed sort of whip, and at the end of this whip there would be jagged pieces of metal or bone. And as the prisoner was flogged, these pieces of metal or bone would tear the flesh and muscle off the person's back. In the words of one position, all that would be left is, quote, quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. In fact, the church historian Eusebius says that during flogging, quote, the sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Flogging quite often would be fatal on its own. It would seem that this is the reason why it's necessary for Simon of Cyrene to pick up Jesus' cross and carry it for him to Golgotha. The amount of blood Jesus would have lost during the flogging would have caused another medical condition known as hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock designates what happens to the body when it loses a substantial amount of blood. Symptoms include increased heart rate, fainting, or sudden collapse due to the loss of blood pressure. Uh, The kidneys will also shut down, and the person will become incredibly thirsty as their body tries to frantically replace the lost blood. We see Jesus experiencing virtually all these symptoms at the cross. I've already noted the physical weakness He apparently endured on the way to the cross. At the cross, we also see him express thirst in John 19. And when the soldier pierces his side shortly after that in John 19, John notes that water and blood flowed out separately. The water in that passage is probably referenced to a fluid buildup that occurs around the, in the membrane surrounding the heart and lungs during heart failure. And if so, then we have some evidence that Jesus' heart rate did elevate significantly as he was dying. This means that there's probably good reason to believe that Jesus lost a significant amount of blood through this entire plot process, both flogging and crucifixion included. Now consider what that back would have felt like as Jesus pushed it up against the wooden cross to draw his next breath, and then slid it back down again so that he could rest and sit on the iron peg. Are you starting to get to the picture? We haven't even talked about the crown of thorns yet. Or the beating Jesus suffered at the hands of the Roman soldiers? Or the humiliation He endured while being spat on and mocked and hung almost stark naked for everyone to see? Nor have we begun to consider what occurred spiritually as the Father poured out all of His infinite wrath on Jesus, which, by the way, appears to be the most intense part of the suffering of the cross. That's the part that we see Jesus lamenting, not the physical agony, as great as that is, but the spiritual agony. As, the God, as God the Father treats God the Son as if He were a sinner deserving of divine indignation. The physical torment of the cross, everything that I just described, is really just a picture of that hidden element to Jesus' suffering. It serves to express to us in a more tangible and comprehensive way the spiritual torment that we can neither see nor fully understand. So what are we to make of all this? How, how are we to interpret the suffering... Of Christ, what are we to make of the fact that the Messiah, the man we call Savior and Lord, endured such extreme anguish in the hours before his death? There are a number of different interpretations we could make. We could take the route that many of the Jews in Jesus' day took and conclude that Jesus must have been an especially unfortunate or even cursed individual. We can conclude that he, he cannot be the Messiah, since the Scripture says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We can conclude, along with the crowds, at the foot of the cross, that if He was the Son of God, then He could take Himself down from the cross. And since He didn't take Himself down from the cross, He cannot be the Son of God. We can take that route. Or we could say with Paul, No, you don't understand, Jesus was becoming a curse for us on the cross, so that we, he might redeem us from the curse of the law. That's what Paul explains in passages like Galatians three ten to fourteen. That at the cross, Jesus served as a sacrifice for sin in our place. He was our substitute. In the words of 2 Corinthians five twenty one, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could go that route. And point out how there was a divine exchange that occurred at the cross. That at the cross, in the words of Isaiah 53, five, Christ was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that would all be true. The suffering that occurs at the cross is owed to us, but paid by Christ. And this is why Jesus suffers at the cross. Not because He was a sinner, but because you are and I am. And we do need to consider this as we reflect on the suffering of Christ, that all that agony that He experiences at the cross is really what we deserve. It demonstrates what God thinks of our sin, and it represents the wrath that we have been delivered from as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. But while it's probably fair to say that that is the central meaning of the cross, it's not the only lesson or observation that we can draw from this event. The Gospel writers, for instance, all seem to take very different approaches to the cross. You go to the Gospel of John, for instance, and the cross reveals the incarnation of Christ. It's a proof both of His deity and His humanity. Jesus, or John makes Jesus' deity evident, for instance, in the manner in which He died. Jesus simply declares it is finished before bowing His head and yielding up His spirit. That's meant to prove what Jesus said earlier in that Gospel when He stated that He has authority to lay down His life and to take it up again. I lay down in my life that I may take it up again, Jesus says in John 10. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's an unusual kind of authority, right? That, that proves that Jesus is the Son of God. The fact that He has life in Himself, and this authority is demonstrated at the cross as evidence to the fact that Jesus is indeed God. He says it is finished and yields up His Spirit. On the other hand, John also shows us that although Jesus is God, he is also in every way still a man. As revealed by the fact that when the spear pierces his side, the blood and the water flow out together. So he's not just a spirit in the form of a man or something like that. No, he's God incarnate. And that's an event that only John records. And John records it once again because he's interested in what the cross teaches us about that, about the incarnation, both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. In Luke, the tone is quite different. There it would seem that Luke is interested in discussing the wrath that will occur as a result of Israel's rejection of the Messiah as well as the incredible mercy that's offered to those who repent. This comes out when, when Jesus tells the women weeping at the foot of the cross, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Again, only Luke records that statement at the cross. And only Luke records Jesus saying on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And only Luke records how one of the two criminals killed next to Jesus believed. And how Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So once again, it would seem that Luke is concerned with how the cross demonstrates both the mercy of God to sinners and the wrath that will come to those who continue to reject that mercy. Now now the point I'm trying to make here, the reason why I get into the details of the gospel writers is because I just want to show you that there are many different observations that we can make about the cross. There's more than one way to read this event. And I think if we want to understand Matthew's interest in the event, which I think is probably very similar to Mark's, then we need to pay attention to the verbal statements made here by those persecuting Jesus at the cross. Neither Mark Mark nor Matthew tell us much about what Jesus said. On the cross. They give us only one direct quotation and then a cry of agony, and that's it. They're concerned less with what Jesus says in that moment and more with what the crowds say. I believe these statements are meant to frame and interpret Matthew's interest in these events. And I say that because if you look at these quotes, there's a very distinct theme that emerges. Let's see if you can find them. Let's look here. The first statement comes in verse 29, when the Roman soldiers twist together a crown of thorns, stick a fake scepter into Jesus' hand, and then kneel before Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. That's verse 29. The second statement isn't verbal, it's written, and it occurs in verse 37, when the charge uh, written over Jesus' head is, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how the Jews wanted this statement to be changed to, He said... I am king of the Jews, and that Pilate insisted on keeping the charge as it is. So we're not to read Pilate's personal endorsement of Jesus into this charge at this time. Instead, we're to read it in the way that virtually everyone in the crowd would have read it. And that's a mockery of the fact that in their eyes, Jesus is most definitely not the king of the Jews. It's meant to be ironic. Just like the mock worship performed by the Roman soldiers was ironic. In verses 39 and 40, we have the crowds wagging their heads at Jesus. And they say, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the religious leaders mock Jesus in verses 41 to 43. They say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And without specifically telling us what they said, Matthew notes that the robbers, the criminals, who were crucified with Jesus reviled Him in the same way. In verse 44. So are you catching a theme here? Hail, King of the Jews! This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. He's the King of Israel, let Him come down now from that cross. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Are you seeing the theme between those statements? This all has to do with Jesus' identity, doesn't it? And and his authority in particular, right? King of the Jews, King of the Jews, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of God. The statements all have to do with Jesus' supposed authority. In fact, what we discover is that according to the crowds, even the crucifixion itself is meant to be a statement about Jesus' Jesus' authority, or rather, his lack thereof in their eyes. The the placard above his head is to be read ironically. Both the passersby and the religious leaders tell Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God by taking himself down from the cross. The religious leaders even say they'll believe He's the King of Israel. They'll believe He's the Messiah if He just removes Himself from the cross. Jesus doesn't, and so in their eyes that must mean He can't. And since He can't, then it must be because He's not the Son of God, in their estimation. Are you seeing this? Are you catching the theme of what's happening here? For Matthew, this scene is all about authority. It's all about Jesus' identity, not merely as God incarnate, but in particular as the promised Davidic king. Matthew has been preoccupied with this subject throughout this gospel, starting all the way back with the genealogy in chapter 1 and the circumstances surrounding his birth in chapters 1 and 2. What Matthew wants to discuss in this gospel is first how Jesus does fulfill the Davidic promise, and then second why Israel rejected its king and what will be the consequences of that rejection. Well, that all comes out in the crucifixion once again. And the question that Matthew is addressing is, how could this happen? If Jesus is the Son of God, then why didn't He take Himself down from the cross? You see, there's a kind of double irony going on in this passage. The first level of irony comes in the form of the mockery practiced by those who crucified Jesus. They don't really think He's the King of the Jews when they leave that placard above His head. The soldiers don't really mean to praise Him when they put the crown of thorns on his head and cry out, hell, king of the Jews. And that's all irony. To say one thing and mean the exact opposite is, is like the dictionary definition of irony. The second level occurs in the circumstances of what's transpiring here. When you, when you contrast those circumstances with what the crowds are saying and thinking about Jesus. You see, the the soldiers bow to Jesus And they call him king of the Jews in order to mock him. The placard above his head is meant to mock him. But guess what? He is the king of the Jews, right? He is the king of Israel. That's ironic. To to mock Jesus for being a king, when in fact he is a king, again, that's the dictionary definition of irony. Any state of affairs where the appearance contradicts reality, by definition, is irony. And so the fact that the crowds ironically mock Jesus for being a king, when in fact he is a king... Is irony. When the crowds say to Jesus, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, as a way of mocking the fact that Jesus can't come down from the cross. When in fact they misunderstood what Jesus meant by that statement, and that Jesus actually meant that as a reference to his bodily resurrection, which will occur here in a matter of days, that's irony. The fact that the crowds misunderstand Jesus' prediction of his death and resurrection and then use his prediction about that to mock him while he's in the process of proving it true, that's irony. The temple of his body will be destroyed and he will rise again in three days. So again, it's incredibly ironic. They would would mock him with these words in these circumstances. Likewise, when the religious leaders say, let God deliver him now if he desires him, they say it in order to mock Jesus. They think the fact Jesus is on the cross proves he's not the Son of God. But guess what? God God will deliver him. Three days later, Jesus would rise from the tomb, and in the words of Romans one four, when this occurred, Jesus was quote declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit by the holiness, uh, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So once again, they say, let God deliver him in order to mock the fact that Jesus was not the Son of God. Little do they realize that God will deliver him and prove that he is the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead. So this is another doubly ironic statement in this passage. And you have to understand when you read this that Matthew's readers would have detected this level of irony when they read this passage. Keep in mind, Matthew isn't... He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. Meaning that the people who receive this gospel already understand that Jesus really is the King of Israel, that He really is the Son of God. They know that the resurrection is going to happen before the end of this book. That's not going to surprise them. So there's no doubt about what's going to be the outcome here. There wouldn't have been any tension in the story when Matthew writes these words. They know how it's going to end. And so when they read this gospel, they're going to see the irony in these statements. They're going to understand that Jesus actually is going to do all the things that the people mocking Him think He can't do. We're supposed to see the placard above his head and, and, and kind of cry out as we read, but if, no, you understand, he really is the king of the Jews. We're supposed to hear the statement about the temple and, and, and go, no, you don't understand, he's going to rise from the dead, he is the king of Israel, he is the son of God. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you were you know, watching one of those horror movies and you are familiar enough with the genre to know that when a person goes wandering off into the woods... You know, you start screaming at the television, no, don't go into the woods alone. Don't go into the woods alone because you know what's going to happen next. That's how we're to read Matthew's use of irony here in Matthew 27, 27 to 44. We know what's coming next. And so it seemed that what Matthew is wanting to do here with this use of, of double irony is he's wanting to draw attention to the fact that although Jesus possessed the authority to deliver Himself from the cross, He did not. Although God did love Jesus and dearly, and He could have put a stop to the crucifixion at any time, He did not. In other words, and listen very closely to what I'm saying here, this is important. In other words, what Matthew wants to show us here in this passage is that Jesus endured all the suffering All the suffering that I described at the beginning of today's message, He endured all of that voluntarily. The crowds are telling Jesus, Come down now if you're the Son of God. Deliver yourself and we'll believe you that that you're the King of the Jews. And they're saying this because they don't think Jesus is the Son of God and that He can deliver Himself. Meanwhile, as Jesus hangs there, hearing this mockery, He knows otherwise. He knows he does possess that authority and that he can deliver himself, but he elects not to. He chose to endure that agony voluntarily. And this is highlighted in verses 33 to 34. Look there. Matthew says, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. That's a very curious piece of information to include. And only Matthew and Mark record that. John talks about Jesus taking a drink at the end of his crucifixion and of his drinking sour, the sour wine that was there right before he yielded up his spirit. But only Matthew and Mark include this episode with the wine mixed with gall, as it's described in Matthew, or wine mixed with myrrh, as it's described in Mark, being offered to Jesus at the beginning of the crucifixion. And that's important. The timing of when Jesus drinks here matters. And only Matthew indicates that Jesus first tasted this drink and then refused it. Mark simply says he didn't take it. And I think that matters as well. It gives us insight to what Matthew is doing here. You see, the reason why the people offered Jesus this drink, and it's not entirely clear who offers it, but the reason why it was offered at the beginning of the crucifixion was because wine mixed with gall served as a kind of anesthetic. It was a painkiller being offered to Jesus so that all these you know, physically traumatic things were happening to Him so they wouldn't be quite as bad. In other words, whoever it is that offers this to Jesus, they're doing it. Apparently, before He's nailed to the transom and hoisted up on the upright and then secured with His feet, they're, they're offering it up then as an act of mercy. They're trying to lessen the amount of pain that Jesus is going to endure. Well, in the midst of this double irony where Matthew is wanting us to think about the fact that Jesus does have the kind of authority that the people mock him for, that he really did possess that authority come down from the cross, in the midst of all of that irony, he says, and by the way, when they offered Jesus the anesthetic, he refused it. And it wasn't because he didn't know what it was. No, he actually tasted it first, because after all, he was thirsty, but when he realized what it was, he refused And the reason that matters is because it highlights for us the reason why Jesus suffered was not because He couldn't prevent it. It was because He meant to suffer. You see, when the Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, they, they did it because they thought that that would secure Him to the cross. They did it because they thought those nails would hold Him there, that it would keep Him from getting away. When the crowds mocked Him saying, if you're the Son of God, then come down from the cross, they did it because they thought those nails kept Him from coming down from the cross. Listen, guys, it's not the nails that hold Jesus on the cross. The iron spikes are not what secure Him there. Rather, it's His compassion. It's His love. That's what holds Him on the cross. It's His grace towards undeserving, sinful people that fix Him on the cross. He could come down at any time because God does love him. And He is the Son of God and the King of Israel. But He doesn't come down because He means to suffer. He holds His own hands upon the cross. No one forces Him there. Again, as He said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In this sense, no one killed Jesus. He sacrificed Himself. So you understand the, 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 the crushed nerves, the dislocated shoulders, the eviscerated back, the thorns in the head, the agony of suffocation, the public mockery, and all that is nothing more than a tangible expression of the vastly more significant spiritual turmoil that Jesus experienced on the cross. Jesus didn't experience that passively. It wasn't something that just happened to Him. No, it was something that He actively embraced. And it was something that he did as an expression of his mercy to you. And that's what Matthew, that's what he wants us to consider as we reflect on the meaning of the crucifixion. The double irony, the refusal of the anesthetic, the constant provocation of literally everyone here, including the criminals crucified next to Jesus, it's all meant to demonstrate the remarkable restraint that Jesus is showing in this moment. It highlights that he was Suffering voluntarily. Now, the question is, why does Matthew want us to reflect on this? What's he driving at here? In short, what's the application of this point? And for the answer to that question, I think we need to draw our focus out once again and see this passage within the larger panorama of the material that Matthew presents in this gospel. You see the fact that Jesus died voluntarily could be many things. You go to verse 15 for instance and, and, and John or, or sorry, you go to John 15 rather for instance and John presents it within the context of Christ's love for us. Right? Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says in John 15:13, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, Jesus says in the very next verse if you do what I command you. The context there is clearly love. Jesus sacrifice is an expression of his love for us. You can go to Philippians 2, which we read earlier today, and Paul explains how Jesus' obedience unto death demonstrates not just simply his love for us, but actually his love for the Father, whom he obeyed all the way to the point of death, and how we should imitate that in our love for one another. So we could talk about that aspect of of Jesus' willingness to go to the cross as well, of his zeal for the Father. And we could go on, but the point is that there's a lot of points that we could draw from the fact that Jesus died willingly, that he offered himself voluntarily. What's the implication that Matthew wants us to take away from this, though? And when I set this passage within the larger framework of this gospel, I I think he intends for us to see this actually as an example for us to follow. Matthew's writing to Christians, again, probably Jewish Christians, who are apparently suffering for their faith. That's evident by just how often Matthew talks about Jesus' teaching on suffering in this book. It comes up in the Sermon on the Mount as, as the capstone of the Beatitudes. It comes up again in Matthew 10. He explains why this suffering is going on throughout the gospel and what will be the consequences of those who cause this suffering. He even points to what's going to be the end of this suffering and the, all of it discourse. He, he then mixes that preoccupation with suffering, with our obligation to go and, and share the gospel in that context, which is another dominant thing theme in Matthew. He's actually even going to hit the climax of that theme in in just a few weeks when the resurrected Jesus closes out this gospel by telling his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. And from this, it would seem that what Matthew wants to do with this gospel is, is encourage these Jewish Christians suffering for their faith to persevere in their witness. He wants them to continue to press on in the face of the severe headwinds that they're encountering for the gospel. You read this passage in that context. And it would seem that the point Matthew wants to make is that this is how we're to respond to persecution. We respond just the way our Savior did. We return evil with good. We don't strike out at those who harm us. We lay ourselves down for them. Or, to put it in the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount... This is how he stated it there. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus is modeling in this passage, isn't he? This is what righteousness looks like in the face of evil. It doesn't seek retaliation for the wrong suffered, but it actually lays itself down even for one's enemies, even as they're seeking to do you harm. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. And the idea is that Jesus has shown us how to respond to evil. He doesn't just tell us, return evil with good. No, He models it for us at the cross. And Matthew wants his readers to note this. In fact, I think it's interesting that Matthew notes that the man who carried Jesus cross was a man from Cyrene named Simon. And I think that has more to do that has to do with more than the mere fact that this man, Simon of Cyrene, later became a well-known believer familiar to the church. Mark establishes that point by saying that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus in his account of the crucifixion. Matthew doesn't draw attention to that fact. And knowing how Matthew interacts with the Old Testament passages earlier in this Gospel, I wouldn't be surprised if that's because he wants us to note the Simon who's supposed to be doing this. And that's not Simon of of Cyrene. That's Simon Peter. Peter. It was in response to Simon Peter's insistence that Jesus would not suffer and die, that Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It was in response to Peter that he said that. Of course, later on, Peter said he would do that, that he would be faithful to Jesus even to the point of death. But guess what? Right now, he's not here. When the heat turned up, he wilted. And another Simon, a complete stranger, must be pressed into service to take his place. I wouldn't put it past Matthew to want us to make that connection. Of course, Peter was only one of the inner three disciples. The other two were James and John. It was James and John who asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, same gospel, chapter 20. Just paraphrasing here, they asked him, Let us sit on your right and your left hand in your kingdom. To which Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. Well, guess what? <laughs> They're not here right now, are they? They deserted him. They want to sit on Jesus' right and left? Well, here it is. This is what it looks like. James and John didn't want that kind of exaltation, though not at this point in time. They fled when the men came to arrest Jesus. and, instead, and So instead, you see Jesus flanked. Again, Paul, or, or Matthew notes on the right and left side. By a couple of common criminals who hurl insults at Jesus as he dies. Now, I can't say definitively that Matthew wants us to note this, but I wouldn't put it past him. Not with the way he likes to see symbolic connections in historical events. And so, overall, I think that's the conclusion he wants us to draw here. He wants us to see Jesus' sacrifice as an example for us to follow, he wants us to see the voluntary nature of Jesus' suffering as a mandate. Our place is there on the road to Calvary, carrying the transom as we follow Jesus to the place of execution. We should be the ones hanging with him on his right and left hand side. This is a point that Jesus has made repeatedly in this gospel. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In Matthew five ten to 12 he said, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew 10, he stated it like this, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house behezable, how much more will they malign those of his household? And of course, again, in Matthew 16, he puts it like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus has made it incredibly clear. The path of discipleship is often, often, the path of rejection and suffering. The question is, when the danger comes... Will you flee? Or will you, like Jesus, lay yourself down and voluntarily take your place? I think it's very easy for us to confuse what real obedience looks like. What I mean is that I think very often we think that obedience is something that we do passively. Like something bad happens to us, and instead of responding in sin, we respond in righteousness, and we think to ourselves then, there, see, I obeyed. I did what I was supposed to do. Some personal tragedy overtakes you and you praise God and you instead of curse Him or you keep your mouth shut when someone insults you instead of throwing another insult back and you say to yourself, there, I did what God asks of me. And to some degree, that's certainly true. We are supposed to respond to adversity with thankfulness. We are supposed to return evil with good. So don't misunderstand me. I'm certainly not meaning to denigrate that kind of obedience. However, at the same time, All we're doing in those situations is just responding to situations that we don't really have any control over in the first place. And in that sense, our obedience is essentially passive. Something bad happens to us, something we can't avoid. It comes on us involuntarily and we respond with righteousness. That's commendable. It's commendable. It's just not the full picture of what Christlikeness looks like. Christ-likeness means not just responding righteously when bad things happen to us. It also means actively embracing suffering for the blessing and benefit of others. Again, it wasn't as if Jesus couldn't come down from the cross, and so His righteousness is displayed by His passive acceptance of the circumstances He couldn't control. No, the fact was that Jesus could come down from the cross. But he chose not to so that he could die for the very same kinds of people who put him there. That's way different. Way different. A lot of times we'll embrace suffering only after we've run out of every other option. Right? We seek to be comfortable, we want to avoid pain, and then something bad happens to us. And only after we've exhausted every possible avenue of escape, we, vi- we finally resolve to keep our chin up and face the challenge head on. That's not exactly what we see coming from Jesus. Yes, he prayed at Gethsemane, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But at the same time, once it was determined that the cup could not pass, that this is what God wanted, that this is what obedience looked like, he didn't run. No, he walked to the cross willingly. So let me ask you this. When do you actively sacrifice for the well-being of others? Understand what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you when do you choose to sacrifice for others only after the suffering you couldn't avoid happened to you anyways. I'm asking when do you proactively embrace the sacrifice that comes with service simply because you know that someone else, perhaps even your enemy, will benefit from it? Because that's the example that Christ is set for us. That's what Christ's likeness looks like. It would seem that Matthew is probably bringing up this example in light of the Great Commission that Jesus is going to deliver at the end of the next chapter. That's where his readers are facing a dilemma. They can either bear witness to the gospel and be persecuted for it, or they can keep their head low and avoid it. So they have to choose. They have to decide to either actively share Christ and take up their cross and follow him to Calvary in the process, or to take a more passive route, and perhaps not deny Jesus, but still not really proclaim him either. Matthew has already warned these readers that Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He's already said that to kind of address this dilemma. And now he shows them. And he says, this is the example that Christ has set for you. You go into the rejection willingly. You don't wait for someone to drag it out of you. You take it on voluntarily because that's what Christ did for us. That's our example. That's our pattern. Are you willing to do that? There are a lot of examples I could bring up where God calls you to this kind of actively sacrificial love and I would encourage you to discuss those examples maybe with your spouse on the way home or, or maybe with a friend here uh, after church after the service but, but here's just one example that Matthew would identify for you will you sacrifice your comfort for the eternal salvation of others because that's the pattern that Christ has set for you and I'll leave it up to you to consider how this principle applies in the other areas of your life In just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's table together. And of the many truths that we learn about the meaning of this table, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-19. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? According to Paul, those who receive the Lord's table are participants in the altar. They identify with, they share in the blood and body of Christ, broken and spilled for us at the cross. Well, that cuts two ways. That cuts two ways. On one hand, this means that we receive all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Justification, regeneration, future glorification. This has been purchased by Christ through His sacrifice for all those who believe in His name. When we receive the Lord's table, we declare our identification with Christ by participating in the altar of His sacrifice. And through that participation, Christ promises to give us a share in the inheritance He received as a result of His perfect obedience and death. I think we're all probably pretty familiar with this sense of participation in the Lord's table. When we take the table, we lay our hands on the sacrifice, we identify with it, our sin is transferred from us to the sacrifice as the sacrifice goes and dies in our place. But there's another sense of this participation as well. One that's probably we're probably less familiar with because it's the part that's not as pleasant to think about. And that Sense is the one that says that as we identify with Christ we gain a share not only of his inheritance but also of his suffering Paul speaks of this from time to time of his desire to know not only Christ and the power of his resurrection but in the words of Philippians 3.10 to quote share his sufferings becoming like him in his death Likewise, in Colossians 1, he rejoices over his sufferings and recognizes that through them he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is part of what it means to participate in the altar of Christ as well. It not only means that you're you're staking a claim to his inheritance, but that you're willing to share with him in his suffering as well. So is this true of you? Is that what you're declaring here this morning around the table? If not, the good news is that Christ is the one who supplies you this strength because only He has the power to actually perform this kind of obedience. And when we celebrate the Lord's table and as we identify with our Savior, we also acknowledge that any obedience we would offer is not our own, but it is Christ in us. And so as we close this morning and as we prepare ourselves to receive the Lord's table, I would encourage you to spend a few moments reflecting on the challenge that this passage sets before us. Consider how beautiful Christ's sacrifice is and how incredibly hard it is for us to follow in His footsteps. And as you acknowledge where you are weak, where you, like Peter and James and John, flee from the suffering that Christ promises us, confess it to Christ. Tell Him that you're weak. And then remember that He offers mercy and grace to the poor in spirit. Remember not only that His blood covers you, but that He will also equip you to know the height and depth and length and breadth of His love by strengthening you to share in His sufferings and to become like Him in His death. And you can probably go ahead and come on up here. We're going to just uh, play the music as we close. Please remember that you don't need to wait uh, to be dismissed to receive the elements. I'll close this in prayer. And after I close, you'll have a few moments to reflect and pray while Ann plays an instrumental up here on the piano. You're free to go back at any time and then come back and join us as we worship Christ together. Okay, I'll close this in prayer and then you can continue in reflection after that. Let's pray.